I, I think people are lying to you if they say that they have a, a roadmap in the first uh, in the in the first year or, or even pre-product market fit. I think it's just so hard to draw a clear line. I think you can have conviction on the what, but the how is always the part that switches back and forth. So I think really for us, it was a matter of, okay, we knew we were building a pretty huge tool. It's a beast of a, a surface area. We knew it was a really competitive space. We knew that we had to really take our time to, to build it right and not build it just for us. We wanted to solve a very pervasive problem for a very large audience, but we knew it would take time. Hi, I'm Ryan Buick. I'm the co-founder of Canvas. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lavhart, and today how Ryan Buick built a way to take your customer data and deliver a clear path to revenue. All this and more on Code Story. Ryan Buick grew up in San Francisco, in the actual city itself. He went to school in Oregon, but quickly came back to the area. He's a very proud owner of a COVID dog, i.e. got the dog during COVID, and enjoys biking and just hanging out. He named the dog Jerry in order to make his dad and his Grateful Dead-loving family laugh. Prior to their current venture, Ryan and his co-founders were working at Flexport. They were so early on in the team that while having to prove ROI on a roadmap, he had to grow new skills in data analytics just to service his job needs. This got him thinking about other folks and what sort of tool could support a spreadsheet interface on top of these data sources. This is the creation story of Canvas. Canvas is a no-code analytics platform. It really looks and feels like a spreadsheet interface connected to all of your data sources. We sell primarily to B2B SaaS startups and primarily to, I'm doing air quotes, non-technical users, folks like product managers, operations teams, finance teams, marketing teams, basically folks that are analytically minded and they need to access data, you know, to make decisions every day. But their only sin is that they really don't know SQL, which is the language used to, to query databases. If they don't know SQL, they're basically reliant on two sort of workflows. It's one, you rely on a data team for help, right? And yeah, I think you've seen this everywhere. Folks lining up with questions say, hey, what's our you know, revenue in this territory this, this month? Or, hey, how can I join data from these two different sources? Or, hey, I need this query. Can you help me out? And that takes days and it's work that's pretty repetitive and monotonous for data teams. So they don't like it. You see these queues build up and people get frustrated with how long it takes asking a question to a, da a data team. So business people don't like it. And that's really the status quo at most startups today. The other option, of course, that you see everywhere is people just export data out of their different tools. So you take Salesforce data, take Stripe data, hit export to CSV, and then index match your way to an answer in a, a Google Sheet. And so really, we've seen you know a lot of advancements in terms of companies getting data. We started Canvas really to help out uh, you know the 90% of the organization that isn't technical, but needs data to do their everyday jobs and wants to work independently and confidently. 
So my co-founders and I, we were at a company called Flexport. Just imagine if you were using Kayak for, you know, your own commercial or your own, you know, personal travel. It's sort of like Kayak for freight. And so I started there as one of the first PMs, product managers. Really, when I got there, I had a decent amount of anxiety because I actually didn't know, you know, a ton of SQL. And I previous jobs had had data sort of fed to me, right? I had a data team that could that could give us the, the answers to the questions that I had. So I never really invested in that skill set. And at Flexport, I was there so early, I really had to fend for myself. And so I had to basically prove out my roadmap and prove ROI and features and prove adoption metrics and all these different things. So I was uh, I was pretty terrified. And so I, I took it upon myself to, to take a data analytics course. So I did that on nights and weekends and basically learned the skills that I needed. You know, it really got me thinking about what about the other millions of people who can't afford to do that or, you know, can't take a break from their day jobs and be able to go learn their skills. And the funny thing about SQL is that there's a lot of parallels to spreadsheets. And that's sort of the language and really the, the interface that most non-technical teams have today. We had worked on an internal product at Flexport. My co-founders were engineers on, on the team that I was on. Uh, and we had seen you know, another similar problem where we basically built a spreadsheet interface on top of a couple of different data sources, saw some success with that, with a verticalized, you know, pretty freight specific use case and decided to, you know, in the middle of COVID, go and uh, go and try to do this thing ourselves, but make it a very horizontal analytics tool so that any role could could work with any data set to, to make decisions. Let's dive into the MVP then. So tell me about that first product you built. Maybe it's at Flexport or maybe it's after where you jumped out and created the first prototype. Tell me about that. What sort of tools you used to bring it to life and how long it took you to build? When we left, we had a faint idea of what we wanted to do. We knew that we wanted to build some sort of no-code interface that was mass, you know, that would appeal to the mass market, but we didn't have a specific persona in mind because we had seen across the board at Flexport how pervasive this problem was for marketers, for sales ops, for finance, for product, for people operations, you name it. We started out with really just doing as much research as we could. I went out to hundreds of friends and friends of friends on both the data side and the business side to really just ask them, hey, what's your workflows? like today when it comes to data? What's your most hair on fire pain? What are your workarounds? What does your ideal state look like, right? Asking those sort of basic questions. And I think we got pretty lucky because it was during COVID when everyone was home and pretty bored and burnt out. And so I think a lot of people were willing to take calls with us. We did that, basically formulated, okay, here's here's what we've heard, here's what we think would be a, a decent V1, and we, we put together a prototype, you know, so we would take mocks back to the people that we talked to and did that in Figma. We used a tool called Grain, which I highly recommend for recording calls. My co-founders really got started got started building the thing. We knew that we didn't want to also dip into savings, you know, and try to bootstrap this thing. So we pretty quickly hit the road on the on the VC front as well and ended up a few months later uh, raising our seed round from from Sequoia Capital. Let's stay in the MVP for for a moment. With any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs, and you're alluding to some of those in your description. You know, Tell me about, though, in a deeper capacity, about some of the decisions and trade-offs you had to make around you know, how you built the product or technical debt or, or you know, the, 
the focus point of the product at the very beginning and how you coped with those decisions. The thing that was interesting for us was we were coming into the data space as outsiders. None of us had really worked as data practitioners or you know members of a data team, right? And so we were really trying to figure out from first principles, how could we build essentially a spreadsheet that could handle a billion rows of data in the browser? That really determined a lot of our architectural decisions. So we ended up building, you know, some pretty cool stuff with Rust and WebAssembly and WebGL. And we knew we also wanted it to be collaborative. And so we, we essentially made it like this, you know, almost Figma-like canvas. But imagine if it was Figma for data instead of Figma for design. We knew it had to be performant. We knew it had to be collaborative. And from then, it was really just a matter of what are the best systems that we can use from a data perspective to actually enable the integrations and so we ended up partnering with a couple different tools. Snowflake is sort of the big name in the space for data warehousing. And Fivetran is a big name in the space for getting data from your different SaaS tools into your warehouse. And then another tool called DBT, which allows you to model data. And we took a few turns trying to build integrations ourselves. And so we ended up uh, switching to partnership with those tools that I just mentioned. And that allowed us to you know, not have to focus on integrations, but rather focus on the core technology, which is really the thing that's going to set us apart, right? Um, because if you're going to build Google Sheets or Excel, you know, you have to really, really be diligent about knocking down, you know, the 20% of the, the functionality that matters, you know, the 20% that, that everyone needs. That was a, sort of our journey through through the MVP. I think it's a matter of putting down from first principles what you want it to be and then figuring out how to work the constraints from there rather than saying, okay, we don't really know exactly who this is for. We don't know exactly what their pains are, right? The research was a huge, a huge guiding light for us to be able to say, these are the things that matter to these different people. And now how do we, you know, how do we build the right systems around that to make sure that we can focus on that best experience possible? Well, let's go past the MVP then. Tell me about how you progressed the product and matured it. And I think to put that in a, a bit of a box, tell me about how you built your roadmap and how you decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. I, I think people are lying to you if they say that they have a, a roadmap in the first, uh, in the, in the first year or, or even pre-product market fit. I think it's just so hard to draw a clear line. I think you can have conviction on the what, but the how is always the part that switches back and forth. So I think really for us, it was a matter of, okay, we knew we were building a pretty huge tool. It's a beast of a, a surface area. We knew it was a really competitive space. We knew that we had to really take our time to, to build it right and to not build it just for us. Uh, there's a, a tendency, and I uh, think especially in the data space, to build you know, tools that solve a very specific problem for not that big of an audience. And we wanted to solve a very pervasive problem for a very large audience, but we knew it would take time. I think from the beginning, what we tried to do was just not be embarrassed about selling it. And so we probably set up some calls that were pretty laughable in terms of the demo and how early we were, but we wanted to just get as much feedback as possible. And I think being cagey about it or not talking to customers or not talking to prospects and trying to sell can stir a lot of doubt, right? It can stir a lot of, hey, are we building the right thing? Are people going to use this? And by trying to sell it almost immediately from day one as a prototype, you know, trying to secure customers before we even had the product, 
it really grounded us to, okay, this is what people are really willing to pay for. And you could tell the difference in the conversations, right? They would say it's cool or, hey, you know, we need these X and Y and Z features. And as soon as we started to really boil it down and find the right ICP, it then turned into, okay, we'll take this and we'll, we'll buy it. And just let's make sure that those features get built after rather than using those as a block. And I think that's a key difference, right? Is that, you know, people will tell you that they'll take the call. They'll tell you that it's interesting. They'll tell you that, you know, you need to build X, Y, and Z features before you come back. But the people that actually you're solving a real problem for will, will go through the journey with you. You're solving such an immense pain for them that they don't need to wait for the rest of the features. They'll take a risk because you're solving a, a unique problem for them or you're solving it really well for them. Well, let's flip to team. So how did you go about building your team? And, and what do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you? So we've kept our team actually pretty small. You know, we know that this is going to take a while to build. And you want to make sure that you have a pretty tight cohort of people that are very closely aligned and also that have to wear a bunch of different, a bunch of different hats uh, to be able to solve pretty complex problems, right? We're not, you're not really in this... Uh, like a, a pretty simple workflow, you know, product. It's an open-ended, you know, collaborative spreadsheet to do anything. And so we needed a core set of people, you know, that can be really close to the customers. We're in Slack channels with all of them. We're getting their feedback. We each have the context to be able to build, you know, what we what we need to build and build it the way that we think that we need to build it. That's been a pretty you know, pretty uh, intentional decision on our part. I think in general, what you're looking for at this stage is someone that's willing to really go to war and be in the trenches with you, you know, for however many hours a day it takes, because, you know, everyone says they're a startup person or they're, you know, they're down to do this, you know, until you really get into it and you realize how much of a sacrifice that it is. I think the number one thing that, that we try to value is, hey, is this person you know going to be resilient? Are they going to put up with a thousand no's until they get a yes? Are they going to be able to roll with the punches? And so that's that's really important for us. I think also you're looking for optimism at the same time. That will drive the the persistence from from there. And then I think all you know you're you're also just looking for people that are world class problem solvers that are curious that you know can do a lot of different things because that's what you need at this stage. Let's flip to scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you fighting this as you grow? It's always a balance. And, the, and this goes back to the customer development piece, right? And trying to sell it as early as possible, even while you're still embarrassed. Because if you have a customer that likes the product enough to go and connect their data, and then they pull in their data and it crashes your app, that's the only thing standing between you and the customer <laughs> and getting the deal done that just constantly raised the watermark for us, right? And so, you know, we said we wanted to be scalable from, from the jump, but you don't really know how scalable you need to be, how quickly that needs to happen. Hitting the pavement and, and trying to sell just constantly push that watermark up and up and up to, okay, this is practical, you know, let's wait and see till the next customer comes around. Keep marching and keep improving because, you know, you could have science projects and you see this all the time with startups, right? They don't talk to customers. They build something that's perfect to them. They build something that's really technically slick, but it doesn't solve a real problem. 
And so I think for us, it was a balance of, okay, we know that this needs to be a delightful experience. We know it needs to be fast because that's how it has to be different. But we also need to be practical and, you know, deliver the features that people actually need to solve their problems because something could be fast. And if it doesn't solve anything, then no one's going to buy it. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built with Canvas, what, what are you most proud of? I don't know if it's what we've built necessarily. I think it's the feeling that you get when you see a customer. And this is almost like our first aha moment, right? That we have with customers is, you know, you're on a, a call with them and they've connected their their data and they drag, you know, one of the tables onto their, their canvas and they see all their data for the first time and sort of like a spreadsheet, like, you know, a real time spreadsheet with a couple million rows in it. And they can just pivot it or they can write a formula or they can filter something and create a chart. And they have this, you know, pretty often there's this like, wow, I've never been able to see my data like this or wow, I've never been able to work with my data like this. And I think that's uh, that's something that's really cool for us because it's it is different than than what's on the market. We're trying to be trying to be different on the right on the right axes. There's that sort of first aha moment, which I'm proud of. And then the second aha moment is the fact when they realize that they can save a couple hours a week because of our tool, right? That they don't have to, you know, stay late, maybe one night munging together reports for a, a board meeting or for a presentation to their boss or, you know, you name it. And I think that's, uh, you know, ultimately one of the goals of, you know, primary goals of software is, right? is to make our lives easier so we can focus on, on the more strategic stuff and the stuff that matters and the stuff that makes us happy. Yeah, those two feelings are probably my, the thing that I'm most proud of right now. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. When you go out and raise money, there's, you know, venture capital, there's a little bit of an instinct to act, you know, bigger than you are and, and try to grow pretty quickly, um, you know, and, and spend money on things that maybe make it easier for you uh, to do that and, and, and hire people that make it, you know, easier to grow. Probably in retrospect, there's a, a portion of us that, you know, we got a little too excited. And I think what you have to do is, is remember that, you know, building it the right way versus building it fast is, is, is probably the way to do it. And if people like what you're building, you don't need to force growth, right? You don't need to buy ads. You don't need to, to focus on, you know, a lot of marketing. If you're building a quality product, people will find out. And so I think that's probably one thing that probably a mistake that everybody makes early on when they get their eyes get a little big and probably something that, you know, after a few months of spending money and trying a few different things, we realized, okay, we can actually just go back to basics and just talk to people and build relationships and just keep building the product that we know that we want. And that will always, you know, that will always win. Well, let's dig into the future. So what does the future look like for the product and for your team? The data space is really complicated. I think a lot of, you know, business people get you know, a little anxious when they hear the, you know, when they hear about data, you start talking about a data stack and you start talking about these different tools and the technologies. And I think the, the data industry, I think it's done a, a pretty poor job of actually breaking down what's needed and what's, what's the simplest way to get things done. There's a ton of vendors, there's a ton of people trying to make money and carve out their own piece of the value chain. And really for us, we we're focused on how do, can we make this as simple as possible? Right. Everyone just wants to start out just a, a, give me a dashboard of just my different metrics across my different teams. And let me let me just build the thing 
And I think most people find out that it's a lot more complicated than that. And really, we're trying to position ourselves as, hey, we're the simple alternative to all of that. We connect directly to, you know, Salesforce, to Stripe, to QuickBooks, to, you know, all the tools that you use. You don't need to go out and buy this data warehouse yet. You don't need to, you know, spend money on consultants to model your data. There is an easier way here. And that that way you know, that we're trying to communicate to the world is Canvas, right? Where you can just literally connect your apps without code in a couple of minutes, start building metrics like you wanted, right? And build a dashboard in an hour or so. I think that's that's our ultimate goal. And that's, you know, that's going to be the guiding light for the company for the next decade is how do we make data as easy as possible and as a mass market for everyone instead of the status quo, which is, hey, um, I don't know where to start. I'm going to hire somebody to do this and I'm going to wait a few months and spend a couple hundred K and hopefully I get a dashboard. So let's switch to you, Ryan. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or or something that you look up to and why. It's a bit strange, but probably like my dad influences me, my parents influence me on just as a, as a founder of something and you're trying to help companies and, and, but also, you know, sell goods, right? You have to prove trust before you can do anything. And, you know, my dad ran restaurants and bars and things like that. And, you know, just watching him be like a host and watching him, you know, try to try to create an environment that made people feel welcome, that made people feel uh, comfortable, uh, happy. I think there's a, a decent amount of that when you're when you're building a product and selling the product, where you have to show people that hey, you know, we're a small startup, right? We, you know, our our success is dependent on your success in the product. And how do you communicate to people that they should trust you and that they they should hand over their data and they should you know they should pay you? There's a lot of interpersonal hurdles to jump before you jump even a, a single product hurdle, right? And so I think that's something that's influenced me a lot where I treat, you know, I treat the product and I treat the demo and the sales process like you're inviting someone into your bar or your restaurant. As weird as that sounds, I think it's a, a digital equivalent of that because you're trying to recreate all the same all the same emotions of, of comfort and trust and fairness. Yeah, I think that's been a, a, a big motivation for me. Okay, so we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? One thing that I try to tell folks that are just starting out, too, as well, is something that's been really helpful for us, and we probably started doing this in the past like six months, is just writing and just writing about things that we're doing, whether it's things that we're building, things that we're feeling in the space, conversations that we're having with customers, conversations that we're having with experts and putting it out there to the world and you don't need to pay for anything to market it you don't need ads if you put it up on your blog and you know it's structured well for seo but it's not written for seo it's written for humans (laughs) i think it's pretty amazing people will find it and people will you know like i was mentioning just trust you because of what you've written and they empathize with it and you know those are conversations that turn into customers right because if you're putting your honest self out there into the world and maybe being a little bit vulnerable but also you know developing some unique insight that's something that people will just find it's incredible i, I still don't know how you know exactly people find uh, some of our posts but it really does end up you know, in a, in a strong relationship that eventually turns into, you know, being a customer turns into being a referral. So I think that's something I wish I just did earlier from day one is just talking about the problem. I think it's easy to be like, 
oh, we want to be in stealth mode and we don't want to, you know, put up a marketing site or don't want to put up content early. But it's like you're also staring down the barrel of a gun in terms of how many months of runway you have left. So why not put it out there? Like you trust yourself to execute better on the problem than anyone else. So go talk about the problem. And if people want to copy you, they can copy you. But that's a that's short term thinking, right? That's not long term thinking. And they're not going to be able to you know, copy your exact move forever. Well, last question, and I'm curious if it'll be similar to what you just said, but I'm going to ask it like you didn't just tell me what you told me. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I think first is you have to sort of look in the mirror and be like, do you, re- do, like, do you really want to do this? Is this, uh, is this something that you're ready to put your life towards? You know, you can love something or, or feel so-so about it. Um, but if you, if you really do love it, then it makes, you know, most of these days easy because there's a lot of days where it's not easy, right? You get no's and that's the, the system is designed to, to do that. And it's designed to make it really, really hard to get off the ground. Just making sure that, you know, they, they love what they're doing. I don't know how you would ask that, but I think there's a genuine sense that you can get that's like, you know, that passion and that curiosity about that space, regardless of their experience in it. And then I think the second thing is just making sure that they have, you know, all the right infrastructure set up around them to be able to, to be able to succeed. You need mentors, you need people that you can talk to, you need great co-founders that you can trust that complement your skill sets really well. And so I think it's one, it's having the passion. It's two, having the people around you that are going to pick you up, um, that are going to complement your skill set well, that are going to help you succeed. I think the last is just patience, making sure that you can, on one hand, work as hard as you hum- as humanly possible, but on the other hand, be patient with the results. And it's really, really hard for humans to do. And so I think that's what I, I, I kind of just find myself in every day, which is like, how are we going to work our asses off today? But how are we also going to be patient about the results and patient about, you know, the next step that we're trying to hit or the next milestone or whatever? Because if you're if you're going 100 miles an hour and you're thinking 100 miles an hour, it ends up getting pretty, you know, pretty toxic and pretty, pretty difficult to just go go through that day in, day out. And so you have to do you have to you have to balance, you know, persistence and, and patience. No doubt. That's fantastic advice. Well, Ryan, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Canvas. Yeah, thanks so much, huh? And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com.
Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.